Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Good morning, Hill City. Um, my name is Stephen. I have the, the honor of being part of the, uh, the teaching team here. And really, truly, it's, a, it's an honor, and it's an honor that God separated me as a, as a young man to, to teach his word to God's people. It's something that I truly cherish. Um, this is another week in our series, The Throne, looking at the people's king. We looked at Saul and God's king when he chose David, and we're, we're moving today into the end of David's life. Brad will be back next week to continue David's last words. And then moving into the, the King of Kings. I think every Sunday we're a gospel-centered church and we, we like to talk about the King of Kings, who's Jesus. And so this morning I want you to realize that from when we started to when we are till today and, and really when we finish, it's been 10 chapters, more than 10 chapters, but it's been 75 years in the life of the kings. And that's where we're going to be today. And we're going to be, if you don't have your Bible, don't worry. We're going to have it up on the screen for you. But we'll be in two passages. We'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 24. In the parallel passage, we'll spend most of our time in 1 Chronicles 21. And those are the, the same story, but we get a few more details in the book of Chronicles. And so we'll spend our time there. If you would, I want you to imagine that you're in a long, dark tunnel. Long, dark tunnel, you see that little flicker of light at the end of the tunnel, okay? There's a flicker of light, which is good, right? But you're still in a long, dark tunnel. To me, that's what this passage is. Out of the hundreds that I've preached in my lifetime, this was one of the most difficult to prepare for. Because you have to understand where it's placed in the book of 2 Samuel, and where it's placed in Chronicles, we really don't know exactly when it happened. But theologically, the writer of Samuel said it belongs at the end, and there's a reason for that. It's a story that today, if you just think about it, it's about temptation, it's about incitement, coercion, judgment, punishment, pestilence, and you're like, I don't know what that means. It's like the plague. It's like covid it shuts everything down. Discipline, distress, and sin ending in animals being slaughtered for a bloody sacrifice. Now, I'm just going to tell you, probably not your typical rom-com, right? Like, it's not like that good, feel-good story. This isn't like a script that I could rewrite and just send to Hallmark. They're not going to be real excited about that Christmas movie. Right? Not going to happen. So we start the story in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Now listen, I'm just going to tell you before we get into this passage, there's so many unknowns. And there's so many unknowns in this story that it just screams, okay, if I didn't put this in there, then it's not the main point. And all the things we just read, the temptation and the incitement and the distress and the sin, it's not the main point. It's about the light at the end of a very dark tunnel. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And by this point, if you've ever read your Old Testament, you're like, yeah, over and over and over again, 
He's upset because of their disobedience. Why was this? We don't know for sure. Conjecture is, well, maybe it was after the rebellion of David's son Absalom and after the rebellion of Sheba and so many people went with them and betrayed David. Maybe it is. Good chance it's idolatry. That was usually why Israel was in trouble, their disobedience. But there's so many unknowns. And it says this in Samuel, and he, God, incited, he persuaded, he provoked David against them, Israel, saying, go number Israel and Judah. But if you look in 1 Chronicles, the parallel passage says this, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. And you're like, whoa, 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 what? Okay, so God allowed Satan to go and persuade and provoke David to do something he shouldn't have done. And we have no idea why he wasn't supposed to number Israel. Why? We have no idea why he wasn't supposed to take a census. Like, kind of insinuated is the fact that he was going to put his trust in the military instead of doing what he normally should have done, going to God and saying, should we go conquer this people? Should we not? And you know what's funny? David had no influence on the number of Israel. That was whose job? That was God's. That was God's job. And so that's kind of what what scholars think. But we have to ask the question, and one of the, the reasons we struggle is, why would he allow Satan to provoke David? Because it really wasn't David's fault that Israel was disobedient, but he's going to let Satan provoke David to incite Israel to do something to punish them. And we will never fully understand why God does what he does, because if we understood that, then we would be God. There are times we just have to trust that God is just and he knows what he's doing. But it's so similar to the story of Job that God allows Satan access to his people. In 2 Samuel 24, it says, so the king said to Joab. Now, if you don't know who Joab is, it's David's right-hand man. He was the captain of the military. He was the leader of the army. Not only that, he was a counselor to David. A few chapters earlier, you're going to see David sulking after the son, after his son Absalom is killed. And Joab comes and rebukes him, saying, Absalom led a rebellion. And so you're weeping for him. It makes everyone else that's mourning for the rebellion look silly. And Joab had a good enough relationship. He had been through so many wars, so many years with David. He was his close counselor. And so the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as it were while the eyes of my Lord are still king to see it. He said, please, like, Like, I want Israel to prosper. I want there to be so many people just like you do. But he asks him this, but why does my Lord, the king, delight in this thing? Why do you want to do this? Joab knew that it was the wrong decision. In fact, in 1 Chronicles, it says this. It says, why are you doing this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. But Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. This was 10 months that he did this. And what's not mentioned here, and we'll see this, is during that 10 months, David's convicted. 
He knows that he made a mistake. He knew he knows he sinned. And we're going to see his heart and what, what he says. But in 2 Samuel 24, Joab gave the sum. He came back after 10 months and gave the sum of the numbering of the people. And there was about a million men who could take arms. So it's important to the story to know there's probably about three to four million people because there's going to be a portion of the population that, that, that dies. So your first illustration up here, just, just as a review, we're going to see that David forces a census. Joab questions. He questions the bad decision. But David forces Joab and the other leaders of the army to go and take the census. And then Joab completes the census. Who was doing the forcing in this? David. He's forcing it. And it just, a point of application. How many times in our own life do we know we shouldn't be doing this? Who is forcing a decision that not only harms us, but we're going to see harm so many other people. First Chronicles 21, we picked the story back up, but God was displeased with this thing. And he struck Israel. And David said to God, I've sinned greatly in that I've done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. It's one of those times where he had had ten months to think about it. But sometimes don't those 10 months shrink into instances when we know we've done something wrong? How many of you have opened your mouth and you've literally just wanted to catch the words before they went out? How many of you have just acted in anger as a parent? And all the parents said, oh, whoop, me? What? I, I don't know what you're talking about. Probably the people next to me. They looked kind of shady when I came in this morning. We do it. But then we realize. We realize. And this is where David's at. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer. It's his prophet. It's his spiritual right-hand man. Saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Now, I don't think I've ever done this to my kids. I believe my parents have done this to me at one point. You make them choose their own punishment. I mean, how brutal. I mean, just kind of devious. That's what God does. He says, choose one of them that I may do it to you. So God came to David and said to him, thus says the Lord. In 1 Chronicles, I love how it says, it says, choose what you will. Some of you parents are like, oh, that's good. I'm going to remember those four words. Really? Choose what you will. I've got three options for you. None of these three were good. Either three years of famine, which... We can't even comprehend, can we? Even when we see the infomercials, well, most of us, we don't watch infomercials anymore. The old infomercials about starving kids. I mean, we intellectually understand. Some of us have been firsthand and we've seen it. But our day and day lives, we don't understand famine. I mean, we had people stocking up on toilet paper, leaving behind food. I don't know what's wrong with us. Probably the assumption that it'll just be there tomorrow, right? Food's always available. Or three months devastation by your foes, like you're going to be attacked by someone. David had had enough. No, he won't go with that option. While the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord 
and pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all of the territory. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Can you imagine being responsible for that many people? And you have to choose. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So he chooses the last option because he said, I will fall into the Lord's hand because he's merciful. People aren't. I don't want to be attacked. I don't want famine to depend on other countries. Let me fall into the hand of God. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. Now, if you don't know what this is, it's going to be medical, but not only medical like COVID. There's so many other ripples and repercussions. It makes you vulnerable to attack, other things. But he sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. 70,000 out of a million, not mentioning women and children. So you're like, okay, that's a lot of people. Yeah, that's like Springfield Proper's 150. That's 70,000. I mean, I can't even imagine living through something like this to this degree. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. Now remember this. Now remember this. Now I want to tell you something. If you haven't figured it out by now in your Bible, Jerusalem is extremely important. We'll even see more of it today. You know how important it is? It was a piece of land that from the very beginning God loved and he was going to separate out for himself. How do we know that? Well, if you go all the way back to the beginning of this story that God allowed Satan to incite, to provoke David to do this. Isaiah 14 gives you the absolute agenda of Satan and his enemy. And one of the little throwaway phrases in Isaiah 14 is that Satan said, I will exalt my throne. He said, I will do those. I will be like God. But he says, I will dwell on the sides of the north. And you're like, okay, sides of the north, whatever. The only other time it's mentioned in the Bible, it's in Psalms. And guess where it is? Jerusalem. God has always loved Jerusalem. And therefore, Satan wants to corrupt and destroy it. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction, Is it enough? Now stay your hand. It's enough. Didn't even have the full three days because God is merciful. And we don't understand why sin always has to be punished, do we? I think that's one of the things that I wrestled with in this passage so much is that if it were up to us, we would just be able to break the rules when we want and we would be able to sin. I mean, I think sometimes, well, yeah, other people sin. It should be punished because I don't want them to sin against me. But it's funny. I was at a, a soccer game yesterday and one of the district soccer games and there was a deal in the game where the game got kind of broken up and one of the coaches from one of the schools went to go get the rule book the official Missouri State High School rule book. And I heard one of the kids on the other team, because it was a pretty long pause in the game, say, this is stupid. He's going to get the rule book. Like, why does that matter anyway? Now, I know it was just kind of a throwaway statement. And I think intellectually, he probably understands why there's a rule book. Because if not, you could just kick the ball anywhere, right? You could hit people. you do anything. He, but in just a normal course of life, he's just like, why does it even matter that our goalie has to come out? 
Why does our keeper have to go sit on the, why, why does it matter? And let me just tell you, philosophically, that's where we are in our culture. A lot of times we think, why does sin always have to be punished? And we know the answer intellectually because God is the creator. He can do with his creation as he pleases. And sin displeases him. And it separates us from him. And desperately he wants us back with him. And sin needs to be punished. But isn't it just so hard when you read story after story? It's something I even still struggle with. And the Lord saw and he relented the calamity. And he said to the angel who's working destruction, it's enough. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor. Now remember this. You might just read through this on a normal day, but this is so important. This is why the story is here. And he says he saw an angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David lifted up his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth and had in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. I don't even know what this looks like. The only time we've ever seen anything else like it was when Jacob had his dream and he saw Jesus Christ, a ladder, and angels of God ascending and descending down Jesus Christ, stretching from heaven to earth. You do know that Jesus Christ is the one who connected heaven and earth for us. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus Christ makes that possible. So he sees this amazing scene with the sword stretched out, the angel of the Lord. It says, then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth, that was for mourning. They were mourning their sin. Fell upon their faces and David said to God, was it not I who gave the command to number the people? It is I who have sinned. Well, not really. Israel's being punished for their sin. But David is a great leader. And he says, it's I've sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on the people. God punishes Israel for David's sin. God forces David to choose the punishment. Israel suffers a plague, and then David repents. Who's doing the forcing now? We can try like David did to force things through, but it's God who's always going to have the power. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded to Gad and said to David, David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan. You're like, why is that so important? It's the key. So David went up to Gad's word, and he spoke in the name of the Lord, and Ornan's was threshing wheat. And if you don't know where the threshing floor is, it would have been like almost like what we would think of as a concrete, a hard, big surface where they took wheat and they just beat it. And a lot of times they would have oxen, like yoked oxen, walking over back and forth because what it would do is it would drown out, it would beat out the wheat, and then the shaft they would just blow away. And then they would collect all of the wheat and all of the... And he turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with them, and they hid themselves. I mean, Ornan and his sons saw this, this, this angel of God with a drawn sword, and they hid. Does it remind you of another time when man had sinned and was kicked out of the place where they dwell with God? And there was a, a flaming sword and angels to protect it? If you wonder why, because the Garden of Eden was where God dwelled with man. 
And as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David, and he went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build the altar of the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. And then Ornan said to David, take it and let the Lord, the king, do what seems good to him. See, I've given the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for wood and wheat and grain and offering. I give it all, but King David said to Ornan, no, I'll buy them for full price. I will not take them for the Lord what is yours, nor burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight, paid him a tremendous amount of money, and David built an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with the fire and the heaven, fire from heaven upon the altar of the burnt offering. And then the Lord commanded the angel that he should put his sword back into its sheath. I know that's a lot. It's a long story. And you're like, okay, why is this threshing floor so important? Let me just tell you the site. Some thousand years earlier, if you remember in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham takes Isaac by the Lord's command to a site, to Mount Moriah. And just as he's getting ready to slay his son, the most valuable possession to him, God stays his hand from judgment and he produces what? A substitute to be sacrificed. This is the exact same site. God is going to do something special on this piece of land. First Chronicles says, at the time when David saw the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan, he sacrificed there for the tabernacle which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of the burnt offering were at that time in the high place of Gibeon. But David could not go before it and inquire the Lord, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. God commands David to build an altar. David buys Ornan's threshing floor. It's an extremely valuable piece of land to God. And God offers, and David offers sacrifices to God. So, Stephen, what's the main point of all this story? You just read like 80,000 verses. What's the main point of the narrative? The main point of this narrative is that way back here when God made promises to Israel, he's going to fulfill them. See, what you've got to understand, if you remember a couple weeks ago when Dr. Osborne came and spoke and talked about the Davidic covenant, the Davidic covenant, God covenanting with people, making a promise to take care of his people, is his word to do so. And he's always, always, always faithful to that. And what he did there in 2 Samuel, he said, when your days are fulfilled, talking to David, he said, you will lie down with your fathers, I will raise you up an offspring after you who will come from your body. He's talking about Solomon. And I will establish Solomon's kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So with kingdom and with throne, there was a promise that there would be a place for God to dwell with his people. And really a people for people, a place for people to dwell with their God. The importance is always found in the context the following covenant themes of the Old Testament are just 
so apparent. I mean, you've got the Abrahamic covenant that we've talked about. He comes and makes the Davidic covenant with David and everything that follows after that, the action of God, the plan of God. So when you're reading through your Bible in the Old Testament, you're like, okay, I get this one story, but what's the meta narrative? What's going on? God is always acting according to those covenants and those promises. And it might seem like an insignificant story, but it was one that the writer of Samuel dropped in and said, this is the place that it needs to be. And if you look in Chronicles where it's placed, everything after is about the temple. Now I know, I'm just going to be honest with you, for us, it is really hard thinking about the temple. Because we are selfish. it's, It's a long time ago for the Israel, and you're like, well, we're not Israel, we're the church. We are building a new building. Okay, you understand that's not the temple, right? It's a building. When we enter the building, there's a temple there. But we just don't really get it. But you have to understand to God how important this is going to be. It's the place where he gets to dwell with his creation and where his creation gets to praise and magnify his name. It says in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, just after This story gets done in chapter 21. And then David said, here shall be the house of the Lord, and here the altar of burnt offerings for Israel. In 1 Chronicles 22, later on in that chapter, it says, David said, Solomon, my son is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all the lands. Now remember, where we're going to end today, I need you to remember that. He said, the house, the temple, where I dwell, is to be exceedingly magnificent in the fame and the glory to all the lands. That everybody knows that I live here, that I dwell here. The creator God dwells in this place. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided the materials in great great quantity for his death. And you know what he does? In 1 Chronicles 22, he charges Solomon to build it. 23, 24, 25, he organizes the Levites, the priests, the musicians. In 1 Chronicles 26 and 27, he organizes leaders, officials, and military. In 28 and 29, David prepares Israel for Solomon to be the king and prepares Solomon to build the temple. It was a big deal. Like we come off of one seemingly insignificant story and God is doing something big. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, just on the east side of Jerusalem. It would be considered Jerusalem. Where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And thus, in 2 Chronicles 5, 10 years after the census, all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. Now listen. The ark of God moved into the temple. And if you don't know what the ark is, it was this gold box, but it was significant. God would dwell on the ark That's where they would make sacrifices once a year for the sins of the people. Now, I need you to say this after me because we're going to see it again. Out of all the dedications that happened for the temple, this is what the singers sung. So if you can imagine, the singers today, they sing long songs, right? That's what we do. This is pretty short. 
This is the message that God had as a summary for something that was so important to him, and it's this. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now I want you to repeat it. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. One more time. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Remember that. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed which you have spoken to your servant David. But God will indeed dwell with man on the earth. And this is Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple. Two chapters later, and as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering with the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Now, I need you to remember this too. Remember, magnificent, beautiful so that all the people on the earth would know that God dwells there. And this, it says, the, the magnificence and majesty of God fills the temple. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good saying, for he is good. And his love, his steadfast love endures forever. For he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. That was the short sentence that they had when the majesty of God moved in. And so I know some of you are out there and you're like, this is a long story, I get it. So how does it apply to our Christian lives? It starts out with Satan tempting David, doesn't it? And God allowing that to happen. Do you remember way back in Genesis chapter 3 when God allows Adam and Eve to be tempted by Satan? What was the consequence of David's sin? It affected a lot of people, right? What was the effect of Adam and Eve's sin? In the next chapter, they got to see one son murder the other son. In another chapter, they get to see their spread all over the earth. And in the next chapter in Genesis, they got to see God flood the world because it became exceedingly sinful. You get to see the sin spread. But oh, the light at the end of the tunnel. There was a sacrifice that had to be made in Jerusalem for that sin. And God made another covenant with man. And it was in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that we didn't have to pay that punishment. The wrath of God was, was satisfied through Jesus. And then what? Hanging on the cross, I believe that there was a moment in his self-deception that Satan thought, I've won. Look at him. Son of God hanging there dead and in the grave for three days. But oh, what happened? He didn't just make a sacrifice. 
He raised from the dead to the newness of life. And if you don't know this in the Gospels, Jesus said that his body was the temple. He said, that temple, yeah, it's going to be destroyed. Speaking about 40 years later, the temple would be destroyed. In another place, he said, by the way, I'm going to tear that temple down and raise it up again in three days. And his disciples are like, what? He said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm talking about this temple. Like God lives inside of me. I'm the temple. And I think Satan had thought that he had won. But Jesus Christ comes to life, and what does he do? Satan, throughout the whole Old Testament, was always trying to corrupt the temple and the things that were in the temple, trying to conquer it, always trying to war, because what God loves, he hates. And what happened on that day that he rose again? He said, I'm going to make it available for millions of people to be temples. And all of us sitting in here, The Holy Spirit of God, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, lives in you. And all of a sudden, that plan that he had all the way through this story, he said, I'm going to pick a piece of land that's so important to me. I'm going to put a temple there that's supposed to be beautiful. And God is going to dwell there with his people. And you know what he did after the resurrection? He said, I'm going to make it available to everyone. Man, the indwelling of God. If you don't know this, that when you're a believer, you have the indwelling spirit of the creator God inside of you. There's one letter in the New Testament. You know, there's all these churches that that Paul or other people write letters to, but there's one church that's so similar to us. I hate that it's similar to us. But Corinth, there's so many similarities. Corinth was a relatively young city. It had been conquered and overthrown. So what the Romans did is they sent expats to live there. It was really a country about the same age as we are. It was wealthy, similar to us. The sexual perversion was just out of control, like us. And so you you open up in the first two chapters, there's divisions, and then it rolls into all of these problems. But Paul says this, and I want you to, to walk away today knowing this, the Holy Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit in us, the Holy Spirit for others. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, he asks a rhetorical question. He's such a good teacher. And Paul's a little sarcastic. So is Jesus at times. If you've read this, you can see the sarcasm. You can see it in the rhetorical question. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Because see, the Corinthians had all these things going on where they thought, well, I can just do whatever I want with my body in my mind, and it doesn't affect the spirit living inside. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not true. That's not true. It's all holistic. It's connected. He said the spirit of God lives in you. And he says this, who you have from God, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I'm 44 years old. I'll be 45 this year. When I grew up, it was very, very common in American Christianity to tell people that Jesus Christ came to save them so that they wouldn't have to go to hell. And that is true, but that is a fraction of what the gospel truly is. And listen, this is, this is a hard message, so please receive this from God. 
When someone decides to follow Christ, to give their life to him, to pass from death to life, there's so many ways we say it. When somebody decides that they are, cannot survive, they, they can't survive in their sin, there's nothing they can do, they need a savior, let me just tell you something, there's something that comes along with that. It's not just a free ticket to heaven. That's not it at all. You accept him as Lord also. See, what happens, there's a trade God says, I will take your sin and put it upon Jesus Christ. He will take that, and in return, you get his righteousness. If anybody of you have ever wondered, okay, so when this is all said and done, the scrolls are wrapped up, and I stand before God, what's that going to be like? Let me just tell you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God looks at you and doesn't see anything that you've done. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ on you. And that's why you can stand before God. He sees no sin. But what scares me is so many people love to accept him as Savior. Like, I just want to be saved from my sins. Well, yeah, who wouldn't? Who would really honestly stand there and go, yeah, I just think I'm going to give hell a chance, right? No one. Like, if it's true, I'll just give hell a chance. Following Jesus is so much more than that. He says, what happens is you say, here I am, I'm yours. And what Jesus Christ did is he purchased us. Doulos is a word in the New Testament, which means servant or slave. That's what we are. He owns us. He bought us with a price. When I was preparing, and it was a difficult passage, because I think in our nature, we just don't, like to be told what to be done, do we? We like to be in control. If you remember from the very first week when they showed the video of the throne, we love to sit on our own throne. We don't want God to rule all the time. Intellectually, we're always like, yeah, I want God to just be the driver. I'll be in the backseat. All right, I get it. He's like the great Uber driver in the sky. We just love to drive ourselves. But it's hard living that. That's Christ in us. In John chapter 14, God promises that he would send the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to dwell inside of us. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, not only is he inside of you personally, whenever you accept Christ, whenever you give your life to him as Lord, his spirit moves into you. But in 2 Corinthians 6, it says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord to Christ and Belial, that's Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This is what he's driving at. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. See, when we have idolatry, when we have other sin in our life, it not only affects us because the Spirit of God lives inside of us and they war, it affects other people. The Holy Spirit of God lives in us. That's why Jesus Christ died was so that his gospel, his fame, his beauty is in us and it can be seen in the whole world. The magnificence and the beauty of the temple is God. when God looks down, he sees millions of them now. But there's people still on this planet that don't know Jesus. They don't follow him, and the wrath of God is still on them. 
So the wrath of God in us, in us personally, in us corporately as the church, this gathering just signifies a small portion of what temple is being built. If you remember Ephesians chapter 2 when Brad was preaching, that it's like all the Christians in the whole world, it's in the history of since Jesus Christ died, are being collectively brought together, and it's a temple. This is where I wanted to get to. In Galatians 5, it says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. And I know we have this metaphor, and Brad explained it a few weeks ago. It's all the way throughout the Bible. You'll see a ton in Proverbs that talks about walking or a path. It's talking about your lifestyle. And he says, but I say, I want your lifestyle to be by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they're opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Okay. He's made a bunch of temples. We have a bunch of temples in here, and we collectively, he refers to us as a temple. There are a bunch of people that do not have the indwelling of the Spirit of God. When God will look at them one day, wrath will be upon them, and they will have to answer for their sin. Let me just ask you. It's going to get as practical as you can get these last few minutes. When people see your temple is the fruit of that spirit living inside of you, the result of that spirit living inside of you, is it love? Okay, Stephen, yeah, I'm a loving person, loving God. Okay, spending time with him in his word and in prayer, loving him spending time with him, you realize what drastic measures he takes to dwell with his people because he loves them. Do you love others? Like love others that you want people to know this message. Jesus gets even more difficult when he starts describing love, loving our enemies. Well, that's gone a little too far. That's what the fruit of having the Spirit of God inside of you can do. The power to love. Peace. In a world that's just, that's just so unpleasant, are you someone that has joy and peace? It's not that you're always happy, but you have this joy inside of you because you know that the Spirit of God is inside of you. You have communion in a relationship with God this world, it's going to get crazy in the next couple years, even more crazy than it is now, isn't it? And it's not going to be a peaceful place. The things that are, are preached to us, that are in front of our eyes, whether it's social media or people talking, it's just, it's going to be a place of division. God needs temples that show God's marvelous peace. In a world where everything is right now, and it's just all about pleasure and immediacy, he needs people, he needs temples to show God's patience. He's so patient. Kindness. Just in a world where it's so easy to put forth an unkind word, to be mean, to be unpleasurable, to be around. He says, I want you to be kind people. You're the temple of the living God to show goodness 
and faithfulness. Faithfulness to who? Faithfulness to the people you're supposed to love. It did amazing all the way back when he makes these promises that every action he makes is according to his covenant faithfulness. And I just pray, he says he's screaming here, and I pray for us that we would be faithful people, faithful to God's word, faithful to prayer, faithful to the people of God, those around you in your city group, faithful just in all those things, faithful to be a person that lives by the spirit no matter where you are. And he says gentleness and self-control. To be gentle, not to be mean, not to be harsh, but to be gentle, meek. And the last one, self-control. That's tough, is it not? Those of you parents out there right now, you, you're like, I am literally taking this little thing and I have to control it. And then I have to eventually one day work it into self-control and then pray to God one day by their self-control that God arrests them and they're able to be God-controlled temples. If you're taking giving communion today, please make your way down. Here in a minute, if you are new with us, every gathering we, we take communion because we believe it's a big deal to remember what happens over here and the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And so by taking the bread, we remember that sacrifice, his body, his temple being broken so that we can have the spirit of God living inside of us and among us powerfully. And when we take the juice, we remember his blood being shed so that we can come before his throne and dwell with him. It's amazing in this story what links that he went to to buy a piece of land that would later become a temple. As you walk out these doors today, please remember, you are not just flesh and blood. You are a magnificent, beautiful temple that God dwells in and wants for other people to see that so that they may also have the same.